You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Before we get into First uh, Timothy, we will be in First Timothy chapter two. If you want to go ahead and find your place there, but before we do that, I want to just uh, take a moment. Let's bow our heads, and, uh, close our eyes. We just want to kind of get our mind focused not only on what we're going to cover today, but also what this coming week means to us as disciples of Jesus. So just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want you to kind of clear the clutter out. I know you have schedules that you need to get that you need to keep the day. You got a schedule tomorrow. You've got all kinds of things that you're already thinking about that you've got to deal with this coming week. But above all of that, as followers of Jesus, we really need to be thinking about what Jesus faced on our behalf this this coming week as we remember as we look at it and we're horrified fresh and anew that, that we would see it with fresh eyes. So to help us with that, what I want to do is, as your eyes are closed, and I, I welcome all those across the world this morning that are watching online. We're glad that you're here. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes as well. And what I want to do is just use our imagination. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see His dirty feet that He's been walking all over, all over teaching people about the kingdom. I want you to see his eyes as they are set on Jerusalem, even against the wishes of his own disciples who, are, who have told him multiple times that going to Jerusalem is not a good idea, but Jesus said he had to go. See him as he stops and heals two blind men just right outside of Jericho. When he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. I want you to see that Jesus, the Jesus whom loves all people, regardless of their infirmities, their backgrounds. But there's something about Jesus that has his attention completely on Jerusalem. The disciples think that he's going there to kick the Romans out. The disciples are arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest. So in your mind's eye, I want you to see Jesus as He approaches the city. And in Matthew 21, this is what we hear. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples did, went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought a donkey and a colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees, spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna! Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we pause this morning to think about his entry into Jerusalem. Because, Father, what the disciples didn't know and didn't understand at that time, we understand. Because we have the whole counsel of your word, and we know that as he enters Jerusalem, it will be his last time. As he enters Jerusalem, it was fulfilling what the prophets had said. By entering Jerusalem, he's going to become a king, but not the king that's expected. Even the people inside the city really don't know who he is. They think he's just a prophet. They don't recognize him as the Son of God. So, Father, prepare our hearts for this week. I I pray that for each disciple in this room, that, that they would take a moment each day and consider the Gospels and consider what you faced each day. Leading up, Father, to that upper room and that final meal with the disciples. And then the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the arrest. And then the trials. And the beatings. Before Pilate. Flogged and beaten. Carrying his cross through the streets. Going to a hill called Golgotha where he would stretch out his arms and be nailed to a cross all the while saying, Father, forgive them so they know not what they do. To a crucifixion, to a grave, to three days later, victory. Father, as we walk with you this week and as we listen to you this week, I pray that you would speak to our hearts afresh and anew. I pray, Father, that that the real historical Jesus, not the ones that we've painted up in our mind, not the one that the culture's telling us about, but the real historical Jesus with all of His love, all of His grace, all of His sacrifice, all of His beauty, would change us from the inside out this week as we walk with Him. From His entrance into Jerusalem to His resurrected life in the upper room with the disciples. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. Guide us in it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 are some of the most difficult, controversial verses probably in the New Testament. They're probably in the top, it's probably in the top five or top eight. So there's a few things I need to get across to you from the very beginning this morning that you need to really get down inside of you. As we move into this text, you're going to see some things there that may, well, bother you. And by the way, every time I open God's Word and read it, something bothers me. And that's, that's the way it's designed. That God's Word and the Holy Spirit will not allow me just to continue in my own ignorance. That it always confronts, it always brings to the forefront some things in my own life that are just not measuring up. And of course, the response to that, that God desires for His people, for His children, is is to repent, make that right, turn away from it, and experience His grace and His mercy anew every day. Have you ever been outside during a thunderstorm? 
and you, you see the clouds coming, right? You, you see the, the black clouds, nothing's raining, nothing's happening yet, and you're walking across the parking lot, maybe you're trying to get into a grocery store, or maybe you're trying to get into your house, and all of a sudden, there is this clap of thunder and this bolt of lightning that just shakes you to the very core of your being. And all of a sudden, you start moving really fast. And for some reason, I don't know, I don't know why we do this. Maybe somebody can tell me, we start hunkering down like that's going to help or something. I, don't, I really don't know why that is. Well, it's after we hear that big bolt of thunder and that big flash of lightning and we start to hunker down. That's kind of how I felt this week. And even months ago when I, I knew this text was going to be coming up. Because I know the cultural challenges with this text. And, and, and this text is, is even more relevant to our current culture because our culture is telling us all kinds of things that we're to believe that we know deep down is an outright lie. And we're wrestling and we're constantly being inundated with what our culture says is true, but yet our our own knowledge of the world, and, and, and if we're followers of Jesus, what, what the Bible teaches, so there is this constant tension and conflict. And, and when we come to a text like this, your pastor feels that conflict, and he feels the weight of that, and he, and he feels the weight of what culture is saying. And sometimes, sometimes, uh, there can be fear that I have to pray through and say, Lord, you've called me to this. This is what I'm about. This is what you call me to do. And I'm not going to forsake that duty to teach and rightly divide your word. You see, our culture is telling us that there should be no distinction between male and female. That there, there should be no inequity between what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And therefore, our culture is running headlong both towards science uh, sociology, psychology, all the ologies that you can name, they're trying to adapt, manipulate, massage our entire culture to embrace the idea that there is no difference between men and women. Yet, you know there is. Not just physically, but emotionally, how we see the world, how we're wired as human beings. We are different. And not only are we different physically, emotionally, socially, in every other way, but, but, but we, are, we are called to different roles within the world. That God has created this world with order. And let me just remind you, because God created the world and He created the cosmos, He has the right to say what is truth and what is false. He has the right to say to you, this is the role that I want you to live in. Now you have the ability to choose otherwise. That's one of the beauties of how God has created us, that, that you have this free will and you can choose to live your life how you please. But God warns us to say, if you live your life outside of, of the boundaries that I place for you, make no mistake, you're going to find pain, suffering, depression, anxiety, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Because the reality is, the creator of this universe, he knows what's best for you. And he created us both male and female. And those differences between us are actually supposed to work together to form something beautiful and amazing. But as our culture tries to eradicate or destroy those differences and try to make us all one homogenous unit where we can't even speak the English language anymore, to where we can no longer refer to he or she, we have to say them, that it's radically changing the way a lot of people in the world even think about society, and a lot of people are just going along. 
A few weeks ago, I told you about where Paul warned Timothy not to violate his conscience. The society and the culture is asking me to violate my conscience. It's asking me to not see that humanity is in one of two categories. It's asking me to accept that regardless of what your biological gender is, that somewhere along the journey you can choose whatever you want to be. You can be, you can be male or you can be female or you can be non-binary. You can be neither. So, so this culture is asking me to accept what I know to be a lie, and not only asking me to accept this lie, but they're asking me to change how I lead my family, change how I live in society, change how I lead my church, change what the Bible says about all of this, and to just go with the flow. And to not do so means that I'm, and here it is, on the wrong side of history. You've probably heard that to your sick of it, right? Well, this text we have before us today not only approaches the whole reality of male and female, but not only that, but, but there are roles that God has given us. And then in those roles, inside the corporate body of the church is when God blesses and moves, provides, and really does some amazing things. Remember, Timothy is in a city called Ephesus. Paul is writing this letter to him to encourage Timothy to, to stand firm. Because his culture, Timothy's culture, is doing the same thing to him that this culture is trying to do to me and trying to do to you. Timothy is in a place that is very difficult to minister. He's already dealing with false teachers that have crept into the church. He's already dealing with the culture itself. And this, this worship of Diana, Artemis, and this humongous temple that was one of the wonders of the world, that people are flocking there and they're engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality. And that is spilling out into the streets. And Timothy... It's got a hard, hard ministry assignment. And Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, make sure you proclaim the gospel, but make sure you understand that you've got to protect the gospel. And that it's only the gospel that can change your community. It's only the gospel that can transform lives. And Paul says, remember where God brought me from. A murderer. A person who was filled with hatred and bitterness. Someone who was zealous for Judaism, and yet Jesus on the Damascus Road changed his world. God has created the world with order. And when we read a text like we're going to read today, that is first and foremost in what you've got to have in the back of your mind. Is that God has created the world, He has the right to say how it's going to be ordered, and that you have a role to fill. You have a role to fulfill in the kingdom of God, but not only in the kingdom of God and the corporate body of the church, but not only in the corporate body of the church, but in your home. Now, there's going to be a, a risk involved with today. One risk is I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth, which, you know, can happen on a regular basis. Another risk is, is that as you read this text along with me, you're going to come up with every reason in the world that that it's not saying what it's actually saying. I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I'll read something in God's Word, and I'll say, does that really mean what I think it means? And God will begin to convict me about something in my life, and, and, and then I'll try to explain it away. Say, well, that was, that was something in the culture. That was something that, that had to be dealt with there. Maybe not necessarily me, and the Holy Spirit won't let me get away from that. So our goal today is to read the text for what it says, understanding in the culture in which it was written, interpret it, and then apply it. Matter of fact, that's the task every single week. So look at verse 8. 
What Paul's going to direct our attention to is how should the household of God operate? Now he said to protect the gospel, proclaim the gospel, that the gospel's powerful. But now he's going to turn his attention to the corporate gathering of the church, which now today is both on campus and online. So the church gathered. How is the household of God, the gathering of the church, how is it supposed to operate? And he's going to stay on that topic from verse 8 of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3. So let's take a look at verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now what you need to understand is the men in Ephesus who were part of that culture, who came to faith in Jesus through Timothy's ministry and the ministry of this church, when they come into this fellowship that Timothy is leading, they bring with them some baggage of their old life. Just because they've been born again doesn't mean that automatically in one single moment in time, they are now all of a sudden sanctified and have walked away from all of their past. You know this to be true, that when you put your faith in Jesus, everything didn't get immediately better overnight. It was a process of walking with Jesus. Now, when you put your faith in Jesus, at that moment, you became a son or a daughter of the Most High. Make no mistake about that. God's wrath turned away from you. You were no longer condemned. So there were things that happened in that moment that changed everything. But that walk with Jesus, well, it's just that. It's a walk. So these men, when they would come into this church, they would bring with them some of their old ways of thinking. And connected with the worship of Diana, there was a lot of anger and bitterness and division among the men. When they would stand in that temple before that huge statue of Artemis, they would raise their hands and they would, they would sing and they would praise and they would, they would worship a false god. But they were doing it with anger and bitterness and malice, possibly for the guy sitting next to them. You see, false religion, idolatry always allows you to worship the false god but never make things right with your brother. It's, it's as though you, you can just kind of go through the rituals of religion, but never really apply that and make things right with the person sitting next to you. That's always the danger of organized religion as a false god at the head of what they're worshiping. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, these men that are coming into your church, I would ask that they pray, that they're men of prayer. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice that anger or quarreling. What you're going to find in this text is that God is intimately concerned about the heart. Now, whether you pray with your hands lifted or whether you pray when you're on your knees, whether you pray with your head closed or your head closed, your head bowed and your eyes closed, whether you pray as you're driving down the car, down the road in your car, the posture of prayer is not the point here. So don't get hung up. What well, does that mean that the only time we pray that we're always supposed to lift our hands? You can, but that's not the point of the text. It's always amazing to me that when we get into a text like this, we get focused on the things that are describing something, not prescribing. What Paul is doing here is he's describing these men, how they once worshipped in the temple of Artemis, and now how they're worshipping in the house of God. And he says the issue here is about their heart, not about whether their hands are up or down or heads up or down. He said, here's the issue. They've got anger in their hearts. If your relationship with someone else is broken, if, if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, a sister, a spouse, a kid, grandkid, 
And when we gather for corporate worship, you, you may go through the motions, you may sing the songs, you may even lift your hands, but there's something missing. You see, when our horizontal relationship with humanity is broken, our vertical relationship to God suffers. When our vertical relationship to God is broken, our relationships with others suffer. The two are connected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can't properly love our neighbor until we love God. But until we love God, we can't properly love our neighbor. So he says here, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you got some men who have a heart problem, and the heart problem is that internally they're angry, and then that turns into external quarreling, fighting, arguing. So instead of gathering corporately to worship God, to honor Him, you know what's happening? you got men filled with anger. And they were fighting out in the parking lot before they ever got in the building. But when they get in the building, it seems as though everything's okay, when in fact everything is not okay. God is intimately concerned about your heart. And he says here to Timothy that it's about the pureness of their hearts, not about whether they're lifting hands or not. Then Paul turns his attention to the women in the church. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, when we read a verse like that, we immediately focus our attention on braided hair, gold, jewelry, dress. That's the first thing that jumps to the, out at us in that verse. So then the questions automatically begin to flow from that. And the question is, well, well, as a woman, am I not supposed to dress up? Am I not supposed to fix my hair? Am I not supposed to wear jewelry? And then when we come to that understanding of the text and we only read it from that perspective, then the next thing that happens is, well, this doesn't apply to me at all. This has nothing to do with our culture. This has nothing to do with where I live. But again, here's the issue. Notice this, that they are to adorn themselves with respectable apparel. He's not talking about clothes. He's talking about the heart. Look at this, modesty, self-control, respect. Here's what's happening. In the worship of Diana in Ephesus, the women, when they would come into this gathering in this temple, they would be very flamboyant. They had just these wild hairstyles, lots of jewelry, lots of expensive clothes, but not only expensive clothes, but very revealing. Now remember, in the worship of, of Diana, Artemis, there was all kinds of sexual immorality that was going on. So when they came into this temple to worship, they were dressed to get attention. Not with self-control, not with modesty, not with respect, but all for the purpose of gaining attention from everyone else. So instead of coming for worship, they were coming to be a distraction. And, and that distraction turned into, in the service itself, depleting people, turning people away from the gospel as Timothy's preaching it. So they carried this same culture out of the temple of Diana right into Timothy's church. Paul knew that. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm going to ask you to do something hard. I'm going to ask you to speak to these women about the, the, the premise that they're bringing their Ephesian culture into the church. Even though they profess Jesus, even though they became part of the body of Christ, they are dressing in such a way that it is distracting from the gospel. And Timothy... It's going to be hard, but you got to deal with this. I have two daughters, 18, 14. And I have a wife who I love dearly who has done a phenomenal job 
at going and picking out clothes for my daughters. But I'm going to tell you something. When I've gone shopping with them, which is not a lot, I'm not a big shopper. When I've gone shopping with them, I usually end up getting very angry. Not at my daughters, not at my wife. What I get angry about is that my wife is working diligently to find clothes for my daughters that don't make them look like they're getting ready to go bar hopping. And there is no way under the sun that my two daughters are going to walk out of my house half clothed because the culture says that's what they need to do. As dad, I'm sitting at the gate. And what comes in and out of my gate is up to me. And when my daughters live, leave my house, they're going to dress respectably. They're going to cover themselves up because I don't give a hoot what the culture says. I'm going with what the Scripture says, and my daughters are not going to go out there and live in a way that is in direct opposition to what God says is modesty. And it's getting hard. Parents, how's it going for you? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one having a trouble here. Maybe my wife's having to buy more clothes online now than she can in a department store because when we go into the department store, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Now, if you're making those choices and you're wearing clothes that are way too revealing and you're a Christ follower, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to kind of get involved in your life there. I'm not going to come up to you and say anything to you. That would probably be disrespectful and probably wouldn't be appropriate. But I'll tell you this. What Paul is saying right here is that we're not to be dressing to be a distraction. We're dressing to be people who say we're Christ followers, but follow that up in the way we walk out our lives on this planet. In the way we dress, the clothes that we pick out, even the things we consume, you're either listening to the culture or you're going to listen to what Scripture has to say about what you're to do as a female and how you're to dress. In this setting, in this corporate setting, there were women coming into the church who were dressing in such a way that it was an absolute distraction. And understand that in that temple worship, it was all about the sexuality of that worship. And they had not outgrown that yet. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, this is going to be a hard thing, but you need to deal with it. You see, the braided hair, the gold or the pearls, the costly attire, it wasn't about looking nice. It was about getting attention. It was about pride, arrogance. Ladies, what the culture wants you to do in dressing the way they think you ought to dress, what that's going to do is it's going to take you down a path to where you begin to believe that the best thing about you is just your body. That, that your value is based on how you look. We have far too many men and women who have already bought that lie that says that, that the only valuable thing about me is how I look, and we begin to live like that, and we begin to believe the lie. So we are constantly trying to make ourselves look the way the culture says we ought to look, and every single day it changes. No, ladies, listen to me clearly. The Bible says you are beautiful just the way God made you. But that beauty is not on display. That, that beauty of, of showing yourself is not to be what is connected to a Christ follower. That to be godly is to dress modestly. To honor Him and the choices that you make. So they have become a distraction. Now I know that there are some churches, some ministries that have taken this way too far. In other words, they got focused on the hair, the pearls, the gold, the costly attire. So they put rules on their church that says, you can't dress this way. Or you, or you, you must only wear this. And see, that's exactly the problem. They've got caught up in something other than the principle. The principle is this modesty leading to godliness. And some churches have become so legalistic about it, we don't even know what's true anymore. I grew up 
in a situation much like that. It was way beyond modesty. It was about control. It was about legalism. It was about laws that man had put together that the Bible didn't support. Modesty, yes. But whether it's gold, silver, or whatever, whatever's proper, that word proper, meaning what's, what's proper in our culture? Notice what else Paul says. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Does that, ladies, does that make you feel warm and fuzzy when you read that? <laughs> Trying to break the ice here a little bit. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that women in the church have no voice? No, it's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, I've been working back over the last eight years of our church since I've been your pastor, and I've been looking at baptisms, and I've been looking at the impact we've had. And you know what I found out? We have we've baptized a lot of kids and a lot of teens. Guess who's working with those kids and those teens primarily? It's our ladies. Ladies, can I just say to you, you have made an incredible impact on the next generation of Christ followers by the work you've done here on this campus in our kids' ministry and our student ministry. So, so Paul's not saying... Paul's not saying, ladies, take a seat and never say a word. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when we come together for a members meeting, a business meeting, that ladies, you're just supposed to sit and not say a word? No, absolutely not. If you see something in the budget that doesn't make sense, if you see something that we're doing in leadership that doesn't make sense, you raise your hand, you stand up, and you speak. Paul is talking about the worship gathering, and he's specifically talking about, and we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, the elders who are leading and teaching. Elder meaning that we would understand it as pastor, overseer. He gets into that in chapter 3. It's going to be a couple of weeks before we get there. Here's what he's saying. He says, ladies, when we gather for corporate worship, that it is not your turn or your time as far as God's role for you to step up and to preach and proclaim the Word of God. That is reserved for men. Now, we're going to get deeper into that when we talk about elders. But I want to take you back to Ephesians 5. I think it's important that we understand what Paul wrote to this church in this letter. So turn back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 21. So not only were some of the women becoming a distraction, some of the men were not dedicated but, but now we have some women who are now becoming very domineering in the church at Ephesus. So let's take a look at what Paul had already written to them about the wife and the husband and their relationship. Now, in your Bible, you may have a break right after verse 21. If you look at this set of uh, paragraphs here, you'll see that more than likely in your Bible or in your app, you have a break right after verse 21, and you've probably got a heading there that says wives and husbands kind of indicating that we're starting kind of a new topic. He's not. As a matter of fact, verse 21 feeds right into verse 22. So there really is no break in what Paul is talking about there. And in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the marriage, there are no dictators in a marriage. Men, you are not the king sitting on the throne dictating to everyone else what's supposed to happen in that home. Wives, you're not the queen on the throne dictating to everyone else what should be happening in the home. There is an equal submission between the husband and the wife. But then Paul qualifies that in verse 22. He says, wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Did you get that? Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Is the Lord a dictator? No, He's not. He's not saying to wives, submit to a dictator. He's saying, he's saying, submit to the man that you're in love with. For husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So just as we see the church in submission to Christ, Christ not being a dictator, but it's a love relationship by which Jesus has the role of Savior and Lord, we have the role as sons and daughters, and we fulfill that role by following him, and surrendering to Him. Inside your marriage, the husband is to spiritually lead the household. Notice, husbands, what Paul says to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. How did, how did Christ love the church? How did, how did Christ display His love for the church? You're not going to like the answer. He died for it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means your wives' needs to become before yours. It means that the role you're to fulfill as husband is to be spiritual leader of your household, but to also make sure that the needs of your wife are met ahead of yours, that even to the point of laying down your life, that's the way Christ loved the church. The kind of love you're to have for her is that kind of sacrificial love. It doesn't matter if you've been married one year, two years, 20 years, or 50 years. It still applies. So, so here's, here's the roles within the household. Husbands, lead your families spiritually. Husbands, you are the ones that are to step up and say, it's time to pray. Husbands, you are the ones that are to step up to say, let's open God's Word together. Husbands, you're the ones that are supposed to step in and say, it's time to go to corporate worship. Husbands, it's your role to look at your family understand your family, to disciple your family. Do not farm that out to someone else. That's your role. It's your role to be the spiritual leader of the household. Wives, you want to fan that in the flame? Here's what you do. Take your husband to the soft to the side and do this multiple times. You look him in the eye and you say, I'm proud of you. You're, you're, turning, you're just becoming a godly man. And I am so proud of you, and I love you, and I'll follow you wherever you go. You want to pour gas on the fire. Man, am I wrong about this? Men, help me out. If your wife looks at you and says those kind of words, eyeball to eyeball you, is that going to pour gas on the flame? Everybody say amen if you're a man. Thank you. I didn't think I was wrong there. You want, you want to see your husband blast off this planet? You look him in the eye and you tell him those things and mean them and do it regularly. Respect and honor. Go back to 1 Timothy. Now, here's the question. Do you think that God would flip those roles when we gather for corporate worship? Do you think for a moment that in the corporate worship setting that God would all of a sudden say, you know, it's okay for women to be elders of the church and to be in that teaching authoritative role? Well, the answer to that question is no, because the church is put together by families. And that, that, that standing in the family as the male leadership of the home feeds over into the church, which is made up of families, and that, that that elder role, that teaching role, that authoritative servant leader role falls to men. Now, that may be offensive, but let me, let me tell you this. Male and female before God are equal. Equally loved 
equally embraced, equal recipients of God's grace. There is no difference. There's no value of one over the other. But this is not about value. This is about roles and how God has created the world. And Paul is going to qualify all this. He's going he's to take it a step further, and he's going to tell you why things are set up the way they are. But notice in verse 12, before we move on, exercise authority. Do you see that word, exercise authority? It's actually one word in the Greek, and it means to domineer. So here's what's happening in Timothy's church. Not only are these folks coming in from the Ephesian culture, and not only are the women dressing in such a way that is bringing attention to themselves and distracting the worship, and the men are quarreling and angry with one another, but, but the ladies who are coming in and bringing this culture with them are domineering over the entire service. In other words, they are disruptive, they are distracting, and Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure that you're teaching your folks the roles that God has for each one of those people in the marriage, in the home, and in the household of God. And then Paul says this, you want to know the why behind all of this? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, I told you you weren't going to like that answer any more than anything else I've said there at points, right? That's not, that's not really the answer we were looking for. All right, Paul, what are you saying here? So, so Adam was created first and then Eve. Well, there's nothing funny going on in the Greek behind it. It says exactly the same thing. So why is Paul using this as his reasoning for male leadership in the elder role within the church? Here's why. Paul's giving us a warning here. Adam was created first. And if you remember in the Genesis account, that Adam was formed and he was created and he was giving, God had given him responsibilities in the garden. He was to lead. He was to basically use what God had given him and to use it properly. But Adam had no one else in creation like him. There, there was no other created entity in the cosmos that was just like him. When he looked at the animals, they looked different. When he looked at you know, everything else in creation, nothing was like him. So God says, I'm going to make a helpmate. And that Adam, you've been created first. You've been given a leadership role. With leadership comes responsibility. So Adam being first, given that mantle of leadership, in the creation order. Then a helpmate is created out of his body, a woman. And then together they were to, to be fruitful and multiply, and they were to live together, not only with harmony with one another, but in harmony with God. And then one day, there's a serpent that comes along. And when we look at Genesis 3, where's Adam? We've got Eve in this conversation with the serpent, but, but where's Adam? Have you ever wondered that? Well, the, all indications are is that Adam's there. He's close by, but here's what's happened. He's abdicated his role as leader. He should have been the one that was having the conversation with the serpent about whether the fruit should be eaten or not, but instead, he's in the background. I don't know if he's playing video games. Joking. I don't know if he's playing video games, watching TV, or on Netflix, but he's checked out. He's abdicated his leadership role. So, when there's a vacuum in leadership, oftentimes someone steps up, and guess who steps up? Eve. 
Somebody's got to lead. So Eve steps into that leadership role that was never her role to have. Does that mean that women can't lead? Absolutely not. We've got some phenomenal leaders in this church who are ladies who've taught me a tremendous amount. But in this moment, Adam was supposed to step up. He was the one that was supposed to step in and go, no, 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 no. This is what God has said. We will not eat of that fruit. Eve, let's get away from this temptation. Let's walk away. But he didn't. He's in the background, and Eve takes on that mantle of leadership. Well, you know how that story plays out. When she has to fulfill a role that she was not designed by God to fulfill, then trouble and pain is going to be the result. And we've all been feeling that pain ever since. Notice what Paul says next. He says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What does Paul mean by that? He means that in that moment, Adam gave up his role. So that when Eve steps into that role to lead, she does a very poor job of it. And Adam is in the background, and he's forsaken his role. So in that moment, the whole world falls into calamity. Now you may be thinking, well, what about Romans 5? Romans 5 says that Adam sinned, and that through the man Adam, all sin came into the world. Well, that's true. Well, how could they both be true? Well, understand that Adam wasn't deceived in that moment. He just checked out. But Adam is responsible. When you look through the rest of the New Testament, who's held responsible? Adam. Because he knew what his role was, and he gave up. So Paul says here, because Adam gave up his role, Eve assumed that role, that she became a transgressor, and that we all became transgressors as a result. And then Paul says something that, quite frankly, I spent hours working on. Look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Folks, that verse, that verse 15, is one of the most problematic verses in the New Testament. I would say it probably ranks in the top five or eight of just difficult verses. And the first, as I, as I read, it, read that verse this week, there's something that, that Paul understood that Timothy would understand in that right. When Timothy read that, he, he knew exactly what Paul was talking about because there was something culturally, something connection between Paul and Timothy. But for us, well, we got to do a little work. we got to try to come down as best we can on what is Paul actually saying here. Spent hours looking at Greek language and different perspectives. I, I want to give you the big three perspectives that I think are just completely off base, but you may see them out there somewhere, so let's, let's put them out there. First, the first one I think is kind of off base, is that God will preserve women physically through childbirth. That's one perception. Well, we know that's not true because you've probably had friends, you've probably had family that that a woman passed away in, in giving birth. So, so we know that that can't be possibly the salvation that Paul is talking about with this verse. So we kind of scratch that one off the list. Well, the second one is that somehow when a, when, a child, when a woman gives birth to a child, that somehow that equates to salvation. Salvation meaning their sins are taken away and that they're made right with God. Well, there are people who believe this, by the way. Well, there's a problem there because what that does is it turns childbearing into a works-based activity. We know that salvation comes by faith, not by works. So if, if a woman has a child and that somehow puts her in a right relationship to God, reconciled, justified, we know that contradicts everything else in the New Testament. So that can't be it. So then the third option 
that I don't think is a very strong one is, oh, this is Paul talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. There's a, there's a connection here to the incarnation in Bethlehem that, that Mary giving birth to Jesus has brought salvation and has lifted the curse for all those who put their faith in Jesus. I don't think that's it either. And the reason I don't is because nowhere in Paul's writings does he talk about the incarnation, the birth of Christ equaling salvation. He talks about the crucifixion. He talks about the resurrection. But he doesn't really talk about the birth of Jesus. So where does that leave us? Well, here's where I think it comes down to. Look at that word childbearing. And when you see that word childbearing, we immediately think of giving birth. And certainly it includes that. But the Greek language has a much broader understanding of that word than what we have in our English. What it means is not only childbirth, but also the rearing of children, the investing in the children, the, the pouring our lives into kids. In other words, what he's saying here is one of the roles that women have been given is the nurturing of kids. Now, does that mean that if you don't have kids, then you're out of the equation? No, I'll come to that in a minute. But if you do have kids, here's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Timothy, here's what you need to be teaching the women in your church and discipling them. Teach them that if they have kids, that one of the most important roles they've got to fulfill is to invest their lives into their kids to teach them about Jesus, to disciple them, to train them in God's Word, to have them connected to a body of believers called the church, to, to begin to open God's Word and pray with them. That, Ladies, you have an incredible influence and impact on this generation. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that if we want to see culture change, if we want to see the world change, if we want to see America change, guess where it starts? It starts on the laps of our moms in a home talking about Jesus. And our dads talking about Jesus. I think what Paul's saying here to the women, for Timothy to say to these women, is don't come into worship trying to get all the attention on yourself. Dress with modesty and godliness. Don't try to domineer and take over and try to find influence in the church to try to, to, try to control things. That's not your role. If you want to find satisfaction, if you want to find peace, if you want to find, well, salvation, growing in faith, walking with Jesus, then you pour your life into those kids that you've been given. I could be wrong there. That's as close as I can come to understanding that text and the context in which it was written. You see, she proves the reality of her salvation by investing in her home not making the world about her. And the women in this church that have had the profound impact on me have been women who have given up so much to invest in others. I could name names. I'm just looking at faces right now. You've had an incredible impact on me since I've been able to be your pastor. You've taught me things. You've helped me to grow as a follower of Jesus. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful for all that you do in the ministry of this church. She proves the reality of her salvation by investing in her home through faith, holiness, love, self-control. And that self-control and that respect and that, that love also translates in not being a distraction, but building up the body. It also translated not having a domineering, take charge, take control, overrun the role that Christ has given me. Rather, 
It is to serve with humility and peace, understanding that what God has given me to do is where I need to be. Just a few things before we close. Man, I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. Because that's where Paul started at. That's where I want to kind of start out as we end and land the plane here. Men, you've got to become the spiritual leader of your households. Because if you abdicate that responsibility, someone or something else is going to take that role. It could be technology. My concern is, is that technology is discipling a whole other generation of kids. And what's coming across that technology may not be a good thing. You're the gatekeeper, men. God has given you the role as a spiritual leader of your home to be the gatekeeper. What are your kids investing and, and ingesting across the Internet? Do you know? Have you asked the look? Have you opened the history file on their iPad lately? Kids, I know you don't like me saying this. But dads, you need to get involved with what's coming across the Internet in your household. You need to get involved in the video games they're playing. You need to get involved in what's discipling them because that's your role and your wife's role together that you disciple your kids. And I'm concerned that culture is discipling your kids inside your own household while you're busy about something else. It is a constant struggle in my household to keep up with what's going on technologically. And I'm not that technologically advanced, but I've learned a few things. If I see an iPad laying around, don't be surprised you see me over there scrolling through. History file, what's going on here? Because I want to know. Dads, become the spiritual leader of your home. But I've got another challenge for you. You need to become the spiritual leader in this church. We need more men. I guess I could use the old adage, we need a few good men. Where our church is going, what Christ is doing in this fellowship, men, we need you to lead. We don't need you to be afraid. We don't need you to be kind of off on the fringe, just satisfied with coming and going. Men, we need you to lead. You lead in the home first, but we need you to lead here. In just a few weeks, just a few weeks, you're going to get a new set of bylaws. We've been working on them now for a long time. Deacons have been looking at them now for a few weeks. It's just right before we're going to put them in your hands. And one of the things you're going to see in those bylaws is that we want to invest in men to lead. Not that we're leaving women out. Don't hear me saying that. But man, we need you to lead your home and we need you to lead here. That's your role. Women, honor and respect your husband. Honor and respect him. If, if he's getting off in the left field, then bring some correction if you need to. Speak the truth in love. Sometimes you might have to err a little bit on the truth side more than the love side, but you understand what I'm saying. Tracy can identify with that. Honor and respect your husbands. And then what you'll do is you'll see him become the man that God's called him to be. You'll see him take on that mantle. You'll see him begin to embrace leading the family in prayer and God's Word and it'll spill out of there. It'll spill over to his job. It'll spill over into this fellowship. It'll have a tremendous impact. Young ladies, let me speak to you just a minute. Dress. If you're a Christ follower, dress to honor God. And you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? I mean, what, what's the big deal? Why, why should I be concerned about the length of my skirt or the 
how low top my top is or any of this. Why should I be concerned about that? It's because, it's because if you're a Christ follower, then the way we dress and the way we act in public needs to emulate that we're following Jesus. So the question would be is, are we beginning to let the culture, are we beginning to let YouTube decide how we're going to dress rather than what Scripture says is modest? You know, I've been very thankful as, as I've led this church and served this church for quite some time, we've never really had a problem here, especially in corporate worship. God. We, we just did it, and I thank God for that. But beyond here, out in the community, how's your decisions going with how you're buying clothes? Is it about people looking at you? Or is it to honor God? And then finally, moms and dads, specifically within the context of these verses, moms, Pour your life and your leadership into your home and your children. Oh, he's saying, well, we got to stay barefoot and pregnant. Nope, didn't say that. What I am saying is that take very seriously the role that God has given you to invest in your kids because someone's going to. And rather than putting so much importance on climbing a corporate ladder, maybe the way you're going to impact the next generation is with that two-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old, or maybe it's a 30-year-old. By the way, parents, you don't give up your responsibility when they grow up, get married, and have their own kids. You still have a lot of impact to make there, not just with grandkids, but with those kids. So as you see, the Bible is clear that we have roles in which to fulfill. The men, women before God are equal, valuable, but it's when we walk in the roles that God has assigned us, going all the way back to creation, where we experience the blessings of God, the power of God, and we see Him do amazing, miraculous things in our homes. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. And while at times it is hard to hear and hard to live out, it doesn't change the reality, Father, that you own this world, and therefore you get to dictate how it runs. For you are sovereign. You are provident. And Father, you have given us these, you know, these teachings to help us understand that there are, are boundaries in which we are to live in. And now, Father, we know that the only way we can do that is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and being transformed. Father, 90% of what we had to say today deals with the church body, those who've been born again. Because, Father, for those who are lost, then, Father, the culture is the only truth they have. So, Father, all they know is to live by what the world is telling them, and they're becoming more and more frustrated, understanding that it's one dead end after another. Father, may they experience transformation this morning. Father, for every disciple in the room and online, we, we ask, Father, that we would look at our home life, the roles that we've been given. And Father, is our, is our walk matching up with our profession? Does it match up with the roles we've been given? Have we embraced those roles or are we fighting against it? Father, have your will, have your way, guide us during this time of commitment 
and may you be exalted. We ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 